Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Mike Murley, and I normally host every third and fifth Sunday of this program, and so I'm I'm stepping in tonight uh, on this first Sunday of February 2022, and I'm honored tonight to be joined over the phone by Michael Bram, a formerly incarcerated activist fighting for criminal justice reform here in Connecticut. Michael will be sharing his story and speaking about the important work that he's engaged in. Assalamu alaikum, Mike. Assalamu alaikum, Mike. It's great to be joining you and the listeners today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. And welcome to Mike Check. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to get to have this conversation with you. So I wanted to start off by asking if you could talk a bit about your your early years, um, where you grew up, and um, just you know your your childhood and uh, and you know your early years here in in Connecticut. Yeah, um, I'm 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 a lifelong Connecticut resident. Um, I was born in Hartford, Connecticut, and I grew up in the north end of Hartford. Um, I went to uh, Fox Middle School and. Um, I went to Weber High School, and, and um, so you know, typical. I, I, I shouldn't even call it typical. I went astray. You know, I had I had uh, you know, good parents, good family upbringing. Everybody worked in my house, and you know, for whatever reason, I chose to hang out in the streets, and eventually, that ended up with me having a 32 year sentence. Um, and I just just recently got out from that sentence. I did from 1996 June until June of 2021. Um, and, you know, I'm out now. I'm gainfully employed. I work as a paralegal for um, a New Haven civil rights attorney, Alexander Taubis. Um, by the way, I mean, he was the attorney who represented me on sentence modification that got me out early. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And th- that's bringing us to this point now. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Mike. And uh, how old were you when that happened? When you when you received that sentence? I was twenty one. I was tw- well, actually, I was twenty one at the time of the crime, and I think I was I might have been twenty three when I was sentenced. And and do you remember what you were feeling at that time? And and what was what was going through your head around that time when you received that sentence? And what your knowledge as well, your understanding of prison was at that time? I mean, the feeling, I, I can't even describe it. It was a surreal feeling. I mean, it's like, you know, people talk about auto body experiences, but, you know, I'm there and it's like, you know, I just couldn't accept that this is happening to me, you know, even though, you know, the facts were what it was, I committed a horrible crime, you know. And so, I mean, but the, 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 I think the, one of the biggest things is that, you know, it was a split second in time, right? And that just altered the, the course of so many lives. My life, you know, the victim's life, the family, his family's life, everyone's life was, was, was affected in an instant, you know? And that that that's like the biggest thing that I was thinking of at that time, you know? I would have to spend the, the, the you know, the next 32 years of my life in prison for something that, you know, it happened in an instant without, without a thought, you know. Thank you for sharing that. And Mike, I was wondering if you could talk about 
what those first few years in prison like for you? In the first few years, I mean, I was essentially, I don't know. I mean, I probably, I could, I, you could describe me as lost and searching for, for, for something. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you even say that because, you know, it's, I think it's in those first few years of incarceration is that I took a, 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 a drawing to the Islamic religion and I, and I studied it from that time, although I didn't convert until 2004, right? But I had that early uh, 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 thirst for it, an understanding of it, you know? And so at some, you know, eventually, uh, you know, I was compelled to, to, to submit to, to, to a greater power, you know? And that's what I did. And I think, you know, that kind of shaped the rest of my uh, uh, life after that, you know, and, and in particular my incarceration, because, you know, whereas I had a particular value system go, going in and adapting to prison and, 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 and living in prison, you have to have also have a certain kind of value system, right? And a lot of times that's, a, that's just totally against Islamic teachings. So you have to choose to live your, your life a different way. You know what I mean? And so I think that, that without a doubt is what got me here today. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that as well. And, uh, I'm definitely going to come back to that and I, cause I definitely want to hear more about that in a little bit, but you know, I can imagine just, you know, as I'm listening to you speak right now and, and speak about this again, thinking about how young you were when you went in. And when you were for how how young you were when you were first incarcerated, and just thinking how scary that must have been, and how that must have been just a lot of unknowns, and yeah, like I could I mean I could imagine that if that was me I would be I would have a lot of fear uh, going into prison like that for the first time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, but it's like anything else. You know, we we adapt to, to situations. So you go in and you you know you have this fear in the beginning or whatever, and you know you go through experiences, you know, traumas and you know violence or whatever. But you eventually adapt, and you know you you you, you I don't want to say like, well, I mean, I, I guess the the best the best the best way I can say it is that you adapt because that's the only thing you can't do to. To and, and, and you know an inhuman, inhumane, you know, you know, subhuman, you know, way of living environment, right? You, you just can't. It's not normal. So the only thing you can do is adapt, and that's what we did in there. We adapted and made the best of a horrible situation. You know, some people, some people, fortunately, can do it, and you know, unfortunately, some people don't have, you know. Uh, you know, the fortitude or the constitution or whatever you want to call it, it they just don't make it out the other side in, 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 in you know, a condition better than when they, when they, oftentimes people, you know, go through that, that process and that, that experience and they come out worse, you know, and I, you know, that's just a circumstance of the prison environment as it is today. I know you spent a number of years in Cheshire Correctional Institution specifically. I did. And I was wondering if you could describe 
Cheshire Correctional and talk about some things that you feel are important for people to know about Cheshire Correctional specifically. Well, I mean, <laughs> the guards there have had nicknamed it years ago. They nicknamed it The Rock. And so, you know, this is the idea that they try to live up to. And, I, you know, I, I think you can describe it as it's literally what they say. It's The Rock, you know. And once you're there as a prisoner, it's like you're living under a rock. You know what I mean? So I think I think that's the best way I can ex- explain it or, or or describe it. Right? You know, you got guys living on in in cells for you know twenty two to twenty four hours a day. You know, with uh, no heat. You know, no hot water sometimes. No heat sometimes. No hot water sometimes. And 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 you know, freezing temperatures. So, yeah. You can you can just imagine the type of lives that people are living in there. Wow, yeah. Thank you for for sharing that. I mean, that's that's important for people to know is happening. And, and if, I mean, they, yeah, if, if yeah, they don't know already, if anyone, you know, sorry, what was that? No, no, no. I mean, you know, because I mean, somebody may say, you know, look at you. You came out, and you know, you came out with college degrees, you know, you, 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 you're trying to go to law school now. You know, people, people will look at you and say that, but, you know, it was a lot of, it took a lot of willpower. It took a lot of, uh, I don't want to call it luck, but it took a lot of uh, 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 fortune. You know what I mean? I, 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 other people see it as fortune. I see it as divine, you know, will but you know a lot of people see it as luck right and so without without that i wouldn't be where i am today right i mean like i told you before you got guys that go in it was many guys that started out with me in you know the mid 90s and then over the years i would see them and they would be shells of themselves like they wouldn't be the same person right and you know, a lot of times, a lot of these guys, they would, you know, these guys were going through what people were calling today solitary confinement, segregated housing unit, you know, any any number of names they can give it, but it's the same thing. It's solitary confinement, right? And so, you know, you put a guy into a cell for 24 hours a day with, you know, sensory deprivation, right? You, you know, they don't, they can't control the lights. You know, they don't have a television in there. They don't have a, a radio. They don't have a cellmate. You know, they'll be lucky if they got a book, right? But then how, what good is a book when most of the population is functioning illiterate? Or I shouldn't even say most of the population, but a high percentage of the population is functionally illiterate, right? So now under that circumstance, what would you, what would you say that is? That's torture. You've got someone in a, in a situation where they... You know, their need for human contact is being denied to them or deprived of to, to them. They're being deprived of it, right? We're, we're social social beings. We need people to talk. We need to interact. And when you take that away, what does that do to the psyche of the human? What does it do to their mind? What does it do to them emotionally? You know what I'm saying? So these are all dynamics that are happening at the same time in these, these brutally oppressive places. You know, like I said, I've seen the change in, in people where 
you see a guy years earlier and, and you know, this is, this is like a scholarly type of guy. Like, he was referring you to, like, these archaic texts or these little-known texts, right? These really, these really red texts and breaking them down to you, you know, engaging you in philosophical arguments or whatever, or, or, or you know, high intellectual arguments. And then years later, you see him after, you know, something happens and they, they, you know, they're put into these, one of these solitary situations. And then, you know, you got a person walking around mumbling to himself all day. I mean, it's, it's like just a night and day, an extreme type of thing. Mike, thank you so much for sharing that and for speaking to your experiences and the experiences of, of other people that you know and that are going through this and have gone through this here in Connecticut in the prison system. You know, again, I really appreciate you speaking so candidly and openly and sharing, sharing all of this. And so, Mike, uh, your, your experience in Connecticut's prison system is now inspiring your activism on the outside. Absolutely. One way that you fight for those who are incarcerated is through your legal advocacy work. You're currently enrolled in Yale's Access Program, which is a pre-law program for students from non-traditional backgrounds, including being formerly incarcerated. And as you mentioned earlier, you're also a paralegal. And so I was wondering um, if you could talk about the Access Program, as well as the important work that you're doing as a paralegal, and how your experiences are motivating this current chapter of your life. Okay, well, I mean, and, and I guess I guess that's another thing too that like kind of I maybe maybe is responsible for, for getting me out the other side, you know, without any noticeable mental health issues, right? Um, it's because I you know I was always in there and I always had you know something to occupy my mind or I was always engaging in some type of way. And, you know, one of those ways was I was compelled on several occasions to file civil lawsuits against Department of Corrections for, uh, officials for violating my amendment rights or, or for or First Amendment rights, you know. You know, a big thing that happens in prison is, is retaliation, right? When you speak, speak up for, you know, a clear rule violation or a right violation, right? You know, everything has rules and regulations. The Department of Corrections is no different. Right. And so when the Department of Corrections says, gives you a handbook, a rule book, an administrative directive and says, this is what you're entitled to, right? This is what you're entitled to. And then, you know, some officer takes it upon himself to, to deny you that, right? And then you exercise your right to grieve that issue. And oftentimes, what happens is instead of the official being reprimanded or something happens, something, a remedy favorable to you comes. Right, that's not the resolution. Oftentimes, oftentimes it is retaliation either from the staff who you're complaining about, or someone else in this, this chain of command or whatever. And so, um, there was, a, you know, oftentimes I I had to do this. I had to, you know, file suit to get a redress for you know these violations. And so, I think. That I mean, I don't think this is where I got my, you know, love of the law, right? I I got the bug, you know, so, and that came with, you know, um, favorable victory on appeal. And so it was at that point, I guess, I you know, I, I kind of realized that 
I could pretty much do anything I wanted to do, right? If I could sit in prison and learn and teach myself the law and win against, you know, trained people from the attorney general's office, then the sky would be the probably the limit for me, right? And so after, you know, being in, in prison and litigating for so many years and, and you know, teaching myself the law, it was like, it was the light bulb went off of my head. It's obvious. Like, what are you going to go home and do? You're going to go do something in the legal profession. This is what you know. You just, what you, you've learned this for the past 25 years, right? And so the, that, that choice was made for me just through my experience, right? And coincidentally, it's something that I like, something that I enjoy doing, something that I love. And then, so I guess to get into your, to, to answer your question or questions, the access program, um, which is which I'm I'm grateful and so fortunate to have gotten into right. Um, it's a two year program and the first year is LSAT prep where they teach you how to take the LSAT and we also work on our personal statements for law school applications. Then the second year is is all applying to law schools, applying for financial aid and stuff like that. So that's that's what I'm I'm doing now in terms of you know my future, but in the meantime, like I said, I'm working as a paralegal for a civil rights attorney who does you know as a part of his practice he does sentence modifications and applications for commutation through the board of pardons and parole. You know, there's nothing more than I would want to be engaged in or or doing more than helping others, right? helping people whose civil rights have been denied to them. Because, you know, that happened to me for many years. So I know the feeling. You know, also helping guys get an opportunity at an early release from prison. I mean, I was there, and I had a 32-year sentence. Thank God I got out seven years early, right? And I got out because, you know, I, I grew as an individual while I was in there. You know, I taught myself things, and I embodied the Dean of Islam. And so that made me a better person, and that made me a person, and I dare say this, but, you know, a person deserving of a second chance. I'm not unique. There are many other people in prison who have reflected on their crime or crimes, and they have, you know, made made the decision in their mind that they're going to live their lives as decent human beings, right? You know, some of these guys are Muslims. Some of these guys are Christians. Some of these guys are, are Catholic, right? Some guys have no religion, but you you know, these guys do have a moral code and they have grown. And so if I think I'm deserving of a second chance at being a productive citizen, certainly there are other guys who deserve a chance and I'm working with Alexander Talbis to get those guys a chance. Mike, thank you so much for for sharing all that and and really let you know opening up about your journey and and the work that you're currently engaged in, which is really inspiring and really powerful. And we have just a few minutes left. That really did fly by. <laughs> it did, <That> really. Right. <laughs> and so, I'm going to ask one first question, and then mm-hmm. the second. So I'll say what both the questions are. But for the second one, it'll be like a combination question, and that'll that'll close us out. I wanted to ask you, given that this is the first Sunday of February, 
if you could talk about what Black History Month means to you. Hmm. Oh, my. This question is like, I mean, to me, and I, I, I often hear it like with people who say it and like, you know, like, why is it only just one month? You know what I mean? It's Black History Month is every day. So, I, I mean, to me, Black History Month is, Black History Month is just another month because I'm conscious of Black history every month of the year. You know, by saying Black History Month, we kind of, what, what, what do we think of when we think of Black History Month? We think of Martin Luther King, we think of Rosa Parks, we think of all of the people who we've been taught as kids is who we talk about during Black History Month, right? And so now we're talking about exceptionalism again, or, or, or people being unique or out of the ordinary, where that's just not really the case. That's why the people who say Black History Month is every month are indeed correct. Right. Because there are so many things, if you look through history that, you know, black people have contributed to, you know, civilization, then you could talk about, uh, you know, something, some piece of black history for every day of the year <laughs> and don't repeat for years. So then it shouldn't be just black history month. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I don't know if you followed that, but. Absolutely. All I have to say to that is, I mean. <laughs> and and alhamdulillah, uh, as well. alhamdulillah so mike we are indeed running out of time we have just a couple minutes left okay. and you've spoken on a number of panels and zoom teachings recently about the current conditions in connecticut's prisons the conditions happening right now especially during the covid19 pandemic and you've also spoken quite a bit about the protect act which passed last year in the state legislature only to be vetoed by governor lamont I was wondering if you could close us out by talking a bit about the conditions right now, uh, as well as your thoughts on why the PROTECT Act is important, and then how folks can learn more and support the work. I hear from guys inside prison every day. Right? I get a call every day, and guys are telling me that they're being locked in for 24 hours a day sometimes. You know, they're being let out of their cells for 30 minutes at a time, you know, to use the phone or to take a shower. COVID is the excuse that's being used, right? But the fact remains that being locked in the cell for 24 hours a day is torture. And so I would just say to the listening public to join Stop Solitary CT this coming Wednesday, February 9th, at the Clay Capitol to mark the legislative session. We need to demand that the legislature passed the PROTECT Act in 2022. And so if you support the PROTECT Act, if you think that, you know, people that are incarcerated should not be tortured, then you need to show up and let the legislatures know that you support the PROTECT Act. No more torture in the public's name. It's Wednesday, February 9th at 11 a.m. And it's, that's going to be at the state capitol, 210 Capitol Avenue, Hartford, Connecticut. And all supporters are going to gather on on the north side across from the Bushmill Park. 